I want to start by taking you back to the year 2000, the millennium, my friends. Um, if you weren't born then, I don't want to hear about it because I know there's some people here with um, a birth date in the later 2000s, but I don't want to hear about that. This story that I'm about to tell already makes me feel about 85. Um, but I spent my teenage years growing up in Croydon in South London. Anyone else from Croydon? No, okay, leave me hanging, okay. Uh, around that time, my favorite radio station, 95.8 Capital FM, used to host um, a music festival in the summer in Hyde Park called Party in the Park. I believe it might even still exist, but it was a big deal at the time. Um, but the year 2000, Y2K, was a particularly big deal for Party in the Park because Destiny's Child were playing. Am I right? Am I right? Backstreet Boys were playing. Am I right? And Craig David was playing. Yes, my friend. I'm from Croydon. Craig David was a big deal. Um, so this was going to be huge. So me and a bunch of my friends, we decided to get tickets. We got tickets. Um, and it was, we were just like, there was so much anticipation building up today. We were so, so excited. But a couple of days before um, the festival, disaster struck. I came down with the worst of all colds, a summer cold. No one wants a summer cold. So I came down with this summer cold, and with it, I had this horrible sort of wheezing cough that meant I couldn't quite breathe properly. And so on the morning of Party in the Park, my dad sat me down and he said, look, I'm not sure it's a great idea that you go today. I think you're just going to feel awful by the end of the day. Um, and in a sort of dramatic teenage fashion, I think I, I fell to my knees on the floor, <laughs> sobbing, saying, Dad, my whole life's happiness depends on this. Please, you have to let me go. I'll never speak to you again if you don't let me go. So my dad, eventually, softy that he was, gave in, and off I went into central London with my pals to party in the park. Um, and it was all going well until about half an hour in, when the heavens opened and it just started pouring and pouring and pouring with rain and it didn't stop and we had come thoroughly unprepared for this um, but we were like Destiny's Child, Backstreet Boys, Craig, David, we can't leave. Um, so we bought one of those plastic ponchos and, and started just bopping away, as we did, to these various different acts. I told you it makes me feel 85. Um, started bopping away to these various acts throughout the day, having a great time. But about half past three in the afternoon, um, I started to take a bit of a turn. I started to shiver uncontrollably. Um, my cough was going from bad to worse. Um, but then, out of the corner of my eye, worse than how I was feeling physically, I saw something that crushed me emotionally. Um, you see, there was a boy that was also coming to the festival who I'd been pining after for months. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw that he was lifting onto his shoulders one of my best friends. And the two of them looked very, very happy about it. Um, so I was like, this is like, obviously now we can laugh. At the time, this was like a dagger to the heart. Um, but I was like, I can't show that I feel upset about it. So I launched in to this like particularly ambitious dance move. Um, <laughs> and in the process, I twisted my ankle. And so things had gone from bad to worse. So at this point, I was like, right, Texas are playing now. Things have gone from bad to worse. The, the boy I love is with somebody else. I've twisted my ankle. I feel horrendous. I'm going home. So a few of my, my good pals took me to the station. I got on a train. I went home, burst through my front door in floods of tears. My dad took one look at me and he said, 
oh my goodness, he said, you need a hot bath, then you need to get in your pyjamas and just get straight to bed. So I did as my dad said. God, there is a point to this story, by the way. I'm getting there. This is very cathartic retelling it for me all these years later. Um, I, I got in, I had a bath, I got into bed, and um, I lay down in bed, and there was a knock on my door. My dad said, um, we don't need to talk about anything, but is it okay if I just sit on the end of your bed with you um, whilst you fall asleep? So I'm okay. So my dad came and sat on the end of my bed um, and I lay down and he just sat there in silence. He sat there in silence and he laid a hand on my ankle um, uh, that I twisted um, and he just sat there in silence, didn't say anything, but I knew that he was praying. And as he prayed, um, suddenly my wheezing, my coughing started to slow down. My breathing started to return to normal until it had completely gone back to normal. And this pain in my ankle suddenly started to disappear as well until it had gone completely. But more than that, um, what sticks out for me more than that was that as my dad prayed, I suddenly felt this overwhelming sense of peace this overwhelming sense of being loved and just that same sense of like when you're in a warm bath. I felt like I was in a warm bath, just surrounded by love and not just the love of my dad, but the love of God. Now, I tell you that very long-winded story about Party in the Park because um, years later, that's probably one of the moments in my life that I can point to. I don't have many of them in my own experience where I personally experienced a measure of physical healing. I think I really believe that's what happened with my ankle and with that cough and that cold I had. But beyond that, what stuck out to me about that moment and what stays with me and makes me emotional years later is that my dad could see where it really hurt. He, he, you know, he had no idea what had happened that day, but he could see in the reaction that I had and how distressed I was that this wasn't really about a cough or about twisting my ankle, that something else had happened, and that was what really hurt. And he stayed with me and he prayed with me until the pain of that began to ease. Now, this is by no means a perfect analogy, my friends, um, but we, as I said, are continuing our teaching series in Mark's Gospel this morning with a talk we've called The Healing. Um, and in the passage we're about to read, um, we're going to come across two back-to-back encounters where Jesus heals two different people physically from things they've been suffering from. But what's interesting about these moments is that in both these encounters, it's not really just about the physical healing. In both these encounters, Jesus sees beyond just the physical to what it is that really, really hurts. So without further ado, if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And for those of you thinking, we're still in chapter one. We've been doing this for weeks. Um, we have actually gone backwards a week because we missed a couple of weeks um, because Jamie and I had COVID. So let me just recap for you really briefly where this fits into the series. So week one um, of this series, we had the beginning, this idea that Jesus has come on a mission to recreate us and to recreate all things. Week two, we had the call, this idea that we are called by Jesus to follow him, to let go of our own small stories for the sake of joining his bigger story. Week three, we had the clash and introduced this idea that we follow Jesus in the context of a battle. And then we skipped ahead a week to week five to the rest. And Cal spoke brilliantly about how Jesus came to bring us freedom from religion. Um, but this one sits at, this would have been week four, the healing. So that's where this sort of fits in um, the series. And I tell you that because that does sort of matter in terms of the flow of how Mark tells things. So anyway, let's dive into the text. This is Mark 1, reading from verse 40. It says this. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? I'm pretty sure they didn't say fellow. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So here we have these two back-to-back healing miracles, these beautiful moments where Jesus physically restores and completely heals two people whose lives have been plagued by sickness, and he makes them brand new. But what I want to home in on this morning is what I've touched on already, is this, that in Mark's reporting of these encounters, it doesn't seem to be the healing of bodies that his, is his primary focus. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, and it's really important that there's a whole other talk in there about the healing of our bodies. But that doesn't seem to be what Mark's primary focus is in the way that he tells these stories. So let me just illustrate this. So take, first of all, the man who has leprosy. He comes to Jesus, and he says to him, "'If you are willing, you can make me clean.'" And we're told that in response, Jesus was indignant. Another translation, Jesus was cross. Um, Which at first read, it's like a really weird response from Jesus. You think someone's come to him to ask for healing and Jesus is cross. What's that about? It's such a weird and unusual response that actually some of the earliest Greek manuscripts have a different translation in that place. They say that Jesus was filled with compassion because they can't square this idea that Jesus would be cross in this situation. Um, But it's hard to gloss over this angry, initial angry response, because even after he's healed the guy, we're told that Jesus sent the man away with a strong warning. Now, that's what we read in the text we've just read. Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. But again, that is like a massive softening of the Greek. In the Greek, it's, it's more translated something like this. Jesus sent him away snorting with indignation. So we read that and we think, what is going on here? Is Jesus just having a bad day? Is he like being mean? Like, is he, is he completely misjudged the situation? What, what is going on in, in this situation? What is this about? What is going on here is that Jesus can see 
for the man with leprosy where it really hurts. He can see for the man with leprosy where it really hurts. And when he sees where it really hurts, it is that that makes him really angry. So let me unpack that. So for a man like this man with leprosy in Jesus's day, you not only had to suffer with the physical discomfort of a skin disease like leprosy, with, like, with no obvious or available cure to you, um, but in the eyes of the Jewish temple, Having a disease like that would make you unclean or impure in the sight of God. And not only that, your uncleanness would be considered contagious to others. So if others came into contact with you, they would be made unclean or impure in the sight of God too. And so as a result, people like this man would have been excluded from the temple and they would have been excluded from the temple community until such a time that they'd recovered from their condition. And even if they did recover from their condition, that wasn't enough. The priests at the temple had to examine you and they had to decide to declare that you were clean once again. You weren't clean until they said that you were clean. And in the same breath, you had to stump up the cash to pay for an animal sacrifice as a symbol of taking away your impurity. You had to jump through all of these hoops to be readmitted to the Jewish community and to be readmitted to the temple. And remember, for Jews, the temple is the place where the presence of God dwelt. So all of this to be essentially readmitted into the presence of God. So all of that to say, when this man comes to Jesus asking him to make him clean, and he says, if you are willing you can make me clean. The implication is this, the priests weren't willing to make him clean. And it's that that makes Jesus so angry. But in response, we see Jesus doing the most amazing thing. First of all, he reaches out and touches the man. He makes skin-to-skin contact with someone that he knows is going to make him, in the eyes of the temple and temple community, richly unclean. But as he heals the man and every trace of leprosy leaves his body, Jesus says to him, right, go back now to those priests who've kept you excluded and show them what I've done for you as a testimony against them. Show them they ought to be ashamed of themselves. In other words, Jesus is inviting the man to join him in confronting this warped temple system which has been keeping people like him as second-class citizens in Israel. So that's encounter number one. Let's fast forward to encounter number two. Jesus is at home. I never clocked this before. I read this this week. People think this was Jesus' house. So Jesus lost a roof through this encounter. Um, But Jesus is at home. Words got out that he's back. And so hordes of people start squeezing into his house to listen to him teach. Um, And in the middle of all of this, some men arrive carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher so that Jesus might heal him. But it's so crowded that they can't get in through the door. And so they improvise. They dig this hole in the roof above Jesus and they lower the man through the roof to get to him. But again, Jesus' response is a really strange one. This man has just been brought, clearly paralyzed, has been lowered to Jesus' feet in this moment of desperation. And instead of healing him then and then with a word, which we know Jesus can do, instead he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And we're like, what? We know eventually, that because we've just read the rest of the story, that Jesus does miraculously hear him. But again, in Mark's reporting of the story, it's almost like the healing's an afterthought. It comes right at the end, and the main focus of the conversation is on the forgiveness of sins. So again, what is this about? Is Jesus having an off day? Has he just wildly misjudged the moment? Is he saying something deeply insensitive? No. Again, Jesus is showing us that he sees beyond just this man's physical condition to where it really hurts for the man. 
And again, let me unpack this. In Jesus' day, a man like this, a man who was paralyzed, would have had his paralysis attributed to his sin. People would say, he's, he's a sinner, that's why he's paralyzed. And, and if he was born with the condition, they'd say, well, his parents or his grandparents must have been sinners, and that's why he's ended up this way. And just in the same way as the man with leprosy, if he was considered to be a, sin, a sinner and he was, had this paralysis, he was considered unclean. So he too would have been excluded from the temple and would have been excluded, um, it would have been excluded from the temple community as well. Not only that, we, we get these clues through the way that Mark describes the man, in particular the kinds of words he uses like for the, like the bed that the man is lowered down on. These are words really associated with poverty. So Mark paints this picture that because of this guilty verdict that has been pronounced over this man's life, this man is now also, to make things worse, trapped in poverty as a result as well. And this is where it really hurts for the man. You know, it's bad enough that he has to face all the many challenges that come with a physical condition like paralysis. But more damaging still for him is the fact that his whole life, he's been made to feel like he's a dirty sinner. He's been made to feel like he's unclean. He's not welcome. He's a second-class citizen. And he's been trapped in poverty as a result. So when the first words out of Jesus' mouth are to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, you can imagine the man just weeping with relief that's everything that he's been longing to hear and having to longing to have someone pronounce over him but again in this encounter it's not just the one man in front of him that Jesus is interested in he wants to take on the whole broken system that has rejected this man and so he has this quite public conversation about, the, about forgiveness, not in private, but in front of the religious leaders that have also gathered there at the house too. And he uses the opportunity to challenge them. So in declaring, Jesus declaring the man forgiven, he challenges the way things have always been done. So you see, for the religious leaders, they knew that only God could forgive sins. They knew that only God had the right to forgive sins. But they themselves had taken on this role of labeling who was a sinner and who wasn't? Who was in need of forgiveness and who wasn't? And so Jesus' declaration that this man is forgiven is not only a massive claim about his own authority, because only God forgives sins, but it's a huge threat to the status and the authority of those religious leaders and priests. And as Mark continues to narrate the story, we're going to see this in the weeks to come. This is going to be a threat that will build and build and build with these religious leaders until it becomes unbearable for them. And eventually they decide they want Jesus gone. All of this to say, in both of these encounters, Jesus plays with fire in taking on these religious structures of the day. But he does it for the sake of these two broken men in front of him, but also for who they represent, the many, many others trapped in lives of oppression and poverty. So that is a lot of information. Um, what does this have to do with us? We um, said right at the start of this series that we wanted to study Mark's gospel account because we believe um, that it's the story of Jesus 
that make sense of our own stories. We believe that as we look at the story of Jesus, it helps us make sense of our own story. So we've been asking this question every week, every time we come to a passage in Mark, how does this, what we've read, make sense of our own stories? So let me try and land this a little bit for us today. I want to say two things. The first is this, at any given moment in our lives, Jesus is always interested in asking us the question, where does it really hurt? Where does it really hurt? You know, beyond what others can see, beyond physical appearances even, where does it really hurt? Um, And I believe that for some of us, I'm going to say some more, um, but I believe for some of us, almost like we could stop there today, because that's the question that Jesus wants to ask you today, is where does it really hurt? And he only wants to ask the question, because I believe, as we were saying earlier, he's here by the presence of his Holy Spirit, and he wants to meet you and set you free and bring healing to you um, from whatever it is that is hurting. And we'll, we'll create some space to pray for that in the moment. But if we were to leave it there and conclude, like, that's the way that we can apply this passage to our lives today, then I think we would be missing Mark's main point through the, that he's trying to get across through these stories. So Remember what we talked about at the beginning. There's a flow in Mark's telling of the the life of Jesus that we've been following. There's like a pattern that's emerging of these different themes that he's been bringing to us. Um, So first of all, Jesus has been showing us that he's uh, Mark's been showing us that Jesus has come to recreate all that is broken in this world. He's also showed us that Jesus has called us to join him in that mission to recreate all things, all that is broken in this world, and to lay down our lives to join him in that mission. He's warned us next that this is a call that is costly because it's lived out in the context of a battle, and we will face opposition, and at times it's going to feel like a fight. This is the sort of trajectory that Mark has been taking us on. And as we arrive at today's passages about healing, it's like he's showing us what this might look like in practice. He's showing us, like, on the ground what this might look like in practice, to follow Jesus in the recreation of all things in the midst of a battle. And what it looks like is moving towards those who are broken and hurting and, in Jesus' name, setting them free. And that might look like praying for a broken body to be healed. It absolutely might look like for praying for a broken body to be healed. Or it might look like growing the kind of community here, committing to being the kind of community here where the rejected and the excluded can find home. It might even look like, and I really felt this for this week, it might even look like picking a fight in the best possible way. It might look like picking a fight and challenging the systems of our own day which hold people in oppression and in poverty. And so these stories of Jesus in Mark, they they make sense of our own stories because they show us the kind of stuff that we are invited to participate in as Jesus' followers in this world. Um, So I want to land today by getting really practical about this and asking the question, how do we take up that invitation? How do we begin to follow Jesus towards those who are oppressed and broken and hurting? Um, Well, I am no expert in this, but I've spent a bunch of time thinking about it this week. And what struck me first of all is like the first thing we need to ask is who are? Who are the oppressed and the broken and the hurting? Because I can't go to them. I can't move towards them if I don't know who they are. Um, And so we can start small with this and just ask in our own lives, who is there around me that is oppressed or broken and hurting? And what could I do to follow Jesus towards them to help set them free? Um, But just like Jesus in these encounters that we've read about today, 
we can and we ought to think bigger than just the individuals in front of us too. We ought to be asking as a church in this city, in this city, in Liverpool, who are the oppressed? Who are the broken? Who are the hurting? So firstly, we can make a start. We find out who they are. Secondly, just like Jesus, we can ask the question, for those people, where does it really hurt? Where does it really hurt? For those people? What's the source of their pain? What is, what's blocking them from freedom? What's keeping them from lives of freedom? And then thirdly, we can ask Jesus to show us how we can join him in fighting for the freedom of those people. Um, I want to land this by talking concretely about some of the things that are already happening through people who are part of this church family here. Um, we're blessed to have a number of people in our community who have given over their working lives to helping different groups of people find freedom in this city. Um, and I wanted to include them in this conversation because they have way more expertise than I do. Um, but as a way of helping us collectively begin that process of finding out who are the hurting, who are the oppressed, who are the broken in Liverpool, and how can we move towards them? So um, let me land by telling, sharing with you some of the things that I've learned this week. So let me share with you briefly, first of all, about the legend that is Sarah McCrill. Um, Sarah works with people struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. And um, I was asking her for some of her take on some of this stuff. And she sent me the most moving message this week about what she thinks has often led the people she works with to turn to crime or drugs or drink. She said this, I feel like lots of people in Liverpool feel forgotten, let down, not cared for and pushed to the side. They feel like the government doesn't care about people here. And then the, that kind of leaks down to them feeling like they have no one to rely on and no one to talk to. We fortunately live in a lovely area, but you go to other areas and see the desperation and brokenness, the complete poverty, which is basically now turned into a way of life, which is gangs, drugs, and drink. So many of my clients are in the situation they're in because of their environment. They've grown up in such deprived areas where it's so rough that they turn to crime or drugs or booze. So many people just feel alone, really alone. Sorry, dramatic pause. Um, I found that response so moving. And it got me thinking that, you know, there, there are many ways that it might look like following Jesus towards these people and fighting for freedom for the kinds of people that Sarah works with day in, day out. The thing about loneliness really stuck out to me to start with. But what really stuck out to me about what she shared was um, this history in Liverpool, of, because of some of its political history, of people feeling forgotten in this city. And, and I felt like, I wonder whether one of the ways that we can follow Jesus towards the oppressed and broken and hurting in this city is to make a noise about Liverpool and is to push back against this history of the city being cast aside or forgotten about um, at a national level. So that, that's just some thoughts from Sarah, which I absolutely loved. Cat um, Hawks, the next legend in the room. Cat works with victims of human trafficking. And again, I was just blown away listening to her describe the work she does and the people she encounters. I asked Kat what she thought freedom would look like for her clients, for those who are recovering and um, from, from human their experiences of human trafficking. And she said, you know, really simply, it would look like them having a normal life. Uh, look like them being able to do some of the things that we take for granted. That often, as a result of what they've been through, their lives are so chaotic that even things like making friends 
finding a job, but things as simple as being able to go to the shops by themselves or even just leave the house by themselves are incredibly, incredibly challenging. Kat said she rejoices when she has a conversation with one of their clients and they say that they've made a friend because that's a huge step for them. I also asked Kat what she thought the big barriers were to that freedom, and she described how sadly the level of trauma that many of these people have experienced means it's very hard for them to move towards a normal life because of that trauma. And that often, even before the trafficking took place, they'd already lived very, very difficult and complicated lives, which are hard to recover from. Um, so we want to pray for those things, um, but I also asked Kat what we could pray for for her <clears throat> as she continues with the work she's doing. And she said, and I love this answer, she said, please could we pray that she continues to have compassion for all of those she works with? Because when you've been doing it for a long, long time, it can be easy to become a bit hardened to some of the stories that you hear. But I love Kat, she said, and I never want to be like that. I always want to just be full of compassion for the people that I work with. So we are going to pray for that in a moment. Um, finally, the legend that is Alex Palmer. Um, Alex works to support the homeless across the Liverpool city region, and in particular, she supports those who are rough sleepers. I asked Alex what she thought freedom would look like for the rough sleepers she's working with, and she said freedom would look like a home, a place that is safe that they can call theirs, but not just a home, a place where they have meaningful community that can support them in maintaining that home and rebuilding that home. It also looked like freedom from trauma and addiction and reconnection with family. I also asked her what she thought the biggest obstacles were to that freedom. And she said a really practical thing that I thought was fascinating initially, longer-term funding. That often the amazing services looking to support rough sleepers only have funding for up to a year, which is just a massive barrier to them being able to support rough sleepers in a meaningful way for the long term. She also described how access to longer-term mental health services is lacking and how another really big obstacle is that we just don't have enough housing in the UK at the moment. We don't have enough one-bed properties um, that are appropriate for people in vulnerable situations. We need more of them to be built. I thought, what a great thing to pray for, more houses to be built. Um, and again, I asked Alex, beyond those things, what could we pray for for her? And she said two things. Um, again, I thought this was a great response, that as she goes about her day-to-day -day job, which is in commissioning these services to support rough sleepers, that she would always remember that she's doing it for them. And she wouldn't get bogged down in like the day-to-day -day office dynamics that are going around. But also that in her everyday life, when she comes across a rough sleeper, that she would feel freedom to engage with them at a one-to-one -one level too. So we're absolutely going to pray for those things. <clears throat> I don't know about you, that's just a snapshot. That's a, again, it's a lot of information in one go, but that's just a snapshot. But I was so inspired hearing about what these women do. Um, and I wanted to say on behalf of us all as a church, I think I can speak for the, all of us as a church, um, that Sarah, Kat and Alex, we honour you in the work that you are doing. We absolutely honour you in the work that you're doing. And, and more than that, we, we recognise in it, because we've just read about it through what we've been reading today, we recognise in it the heart of Jesus to move, to always to move towards people who are oppressed and broken, broken and hurting and setting them free. Um, but for the rest of us, for a moment, let's bring it in just as we land, because I imagine hearing that stuff can provoke a number of different responses in people. Um, it might be that you listen to just 
about those three different groups of people, um, those who are struggling with addiction, those who are recovering from human trafficking, those um, who are homeless, who are rough sleepers. And it might be that one of those groups in particular, it's like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that I cared about that. But something about that like captured your heart. Um, and if that's you, I would just say that's Jesus stirring the pot. That's his call to move towards those people in some way. And, and it would be worth continuing the conversation with Sarah or with Kat or with Alex about how you could be involved and how you could begin um, on that journey. Um, but for others, maybe you hear that stuff and you're like, that's amazing, I love that, but it, that's got nothing to do with the way, what I do with my days. It's got nothing to do with my job or um, my course or where I live out my days and the people that I'm surrounded with. Um, and I want to say if that's you, um, first of all, I want to say you can relax. Um, you don't need to have an existential crisis that suddenly you need to completely change your job and do something completely different with your life. You know, we're all called to have different roles and play our part in different areas. But the beauty of being the church is we get to celebrate and champion what someone else is doing in our church family as if it was our own. We get to champion that and celebrate it as if our own. Paul said, all things are yours, and I love that. And we get to celebrate it as if it's our own. But let's look for ways to support these guys and to champion them and to pray for them. But I think it's also good to not just leave it there. It's good to ask the question, okay then, when, well, in my context, who are the oppressed? Who are the broken? Who are the hurting? And how can I go from them? Um, how can I go towards them? Final group of people that I think this might have triggered. It might be listening to that stuff. Again, you found it inspiring, but it wasn't one of those three groups of people that gets your heart. You found yourself, as you were listening about those groups of people, thinking about a different group of people. And God's got your heart for that, and Jesus is wanting to lead you towards them. And, and I, I felt this thing, that if your heart was stirred by that stuff, and that maybe there was a different group that came to your mind, a great place to start, a way to respond as we pray in a moment, is with this prayer from Isaiah. When Isaiah hears God's voice saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Who shall I send? Who will go there? And Isaiah responds by saying, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me.